Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode seven, The Murder of Suzanne Capper, part two. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode seven, The Murder of Suzanne Capper, part two. Last week was part one of the case, and if you haven't given that a listen to yet, go ahead and listen to that first. Part one provided a background about Suzanne, the people she was hanging out with, and what led to the series of events that I will be talking about today. Before we get started, I did want to issue a trigger warning again for this episode. This episode is even more graphic than episode one. And it contains extreme content, and it's very violent and graphic. If you are sensitive to this, or you are offended by extreme violence and gore, it is recommended that you do not continue listening to this episode. This may be an episode that you want to skip. I also wanted to say that the discussion of this death is not intended to cause any disrespect whatsoever to the memory of the victim or her family and loved ones. I do not glorify the evil deeds of the murderers, nor do I condone any of the acts described herein. So let's get started. Last episode, I described the house that everyone was hanging out at at this time and the heavy drug use that was going on. We left off where Suzanne had left the house because of her mistreatment, but she came back there with the promise that a man that she was interested was there and wanted to see her. So Suzanne came back to the house expecting to see this guy, but instead she walked into an ambush. Glenn Powell and Anthony Dudson from part one grabbed Suzanne, immediately knocked her to the floor where they held her down and shaved her head, eyebrows, and pubic hair. Glenn Powell then wrapped a plastic bag over her head and tied it to keep it in place. Suzanne was stumbling around trying to remove the bag, but Glenn Powell began beating her with household objects, including a board. Suzanne was beaten down to the ground, and she lay there curled in the fetal position, just trying her best to protect herself from the blows. This is when Bernadette McNeely started kicking her as well, and so did Glenn. They switched between kicking her and beating her with their fist. And sometimes they would use wooden spoons or a belt to whip her. The beating was so ferocious that they broke Suzanne's left arm in several places. So she would never regain the use of it. And it just hung at her side, swollen and discolored. Finally, they grew tired of beating her. This is when Jean Powell locked Suzanne in a small cupboard in the basement. She left her here overnight, where she could be heard crying and begging, no doubt hurt and confused as to why her friends had turned on her so viciously. Jean Powell later would tell investigators that she locked Suzanne in the cabinet to protect her from further abuse from the others. Mm. She might have been believed had she not dragged Suzanne from the basement to another cupboard upstairs where she would be taken out periodically to be beaten more 
by whoever felt like it at the time. Suzanne suffered extreme violence in the form of beatings with belts, fists, bats, boards, and whatever objects came into hand. All six of the people would take part in the horrendous abuse. It lasted for hours and then turned into days. Suzanne was also raped and sodomized multiple times every day, sometimes by the guys, sometimes by the men and women with objects, including a board ripped from a bed frame, bottles, and kitchen utensils. When Suzanne's crying out in pain began to disturb the children's sleep, yeah, that's right, there were six kids in the house while this was going on. She was dragged to Bernadette McNeely's old house. This is the one that McNeely had been evicted from that I told you about in part one, but somehow she still had access to this house. I guess the locks weren't changed and no one else had moved in or something like that. There they tied Suzanne spread eagle to an exposed box spring on a metal frame bed in one of the back rooms. She was blindfolded and gagged. This is where she would remain for the next seven days. That's 168 hours. She lay there in her own urine and feces because she was denied even the use of a toilet. In time, she had no bodily waste to expel because they withheld all food and drink from her. Horrific bed sores soon appeared all over her back and torso from being chained on top of the exposed metal springs. She was unable to move. Sadly, these monsters were just getting started. In some of my research, I saw this case was referred to as the Chucky case, and I didn't really know why, but this is why. One night while smoking and shooting up crystal meth, the group watched the horror film Child's Play, which, of course, you may remember this from childhood. I know I do. It's about the doll Chucky that comes to life and murders people, basically. It's very, very creepy. But this provided them with new inspiration to torment Suzanne. Before every torture section, Bernadette McNeely would lean down to whisper in Suzanne's ear, Chucky's coming to play. Imagine how creepy that would be on top of everything else. It's some kind of psychological torture, too, that she's doing now. Soon, when Suzanne would hear this phrase, it would trigger her to scream with terror and dread because she knew it would be followed by hours of sadistic torture. That is just heartbreaking. Another sinister aspect of this abuse was the use of music as a torture device. They placed these large earphones on her head and blasted techno music at its highest volume for hours and hours without ceasing. The tune they forced upon her most often was a 45-minute remix of a pounding rave track called Hi, I'm Chucky, Wanna Play? And that's by the artist 150 Volts. I've never heard this before, but the track repeated the signature phrase, Hi, I'm Chucky, Wanna Play? over and over. Child's Play seemed to have some influence over the torture sessions as a whole. Witnesses said McNeely seemed to become deranged during 
the torture sessions. She even believed herself to be taken over by the personality of the Chucky character. The group continuously injected Suzanne with meth and Adderall to deny her the escape of sleep and to prolong and heighten her torture. Suzanne was kept in prison by the gang for a week, seven days, or 168 hours of relentless, unceasing torment, anguish, and abuse in every single way. She was even burned with cigarettes and lighters. Jeffrey Lee and Clifford Hayes were taken to the old McNeely home, and they were invited to join in. After several days of laying in her own waste and filth, the boys complained of the smell. So they decided to haul Suzanne up and dragged her into the bathroom tub. They doused her with straight bleach and scrubbed her with a yard brush. A yard brush is used to scrub outdoor concrete and it has hard plastic or metal bristles on it. Of course, this just tore open the open sores on her body in the blisters because she had all these bed sores on her. You can imagine how much this would hurt. She was unrecognizable at this point, didn't really seem human. She wasn't treated as a human, that's for sure. She left behind large pieces of skin and flesh in the bath. Law enforcement would find this when they did their search of the property later. Now Clifford Hayes was just getting started. After Suzanne was blindfolded and bound to the metal bed frame, Clifford grabbed a pair of pliers, removed her gag, and demanded that she open her mouth. Dudson described what happened next for investigators. And I'm going to read what he said, and I'm just going to warn you, it is super graphic. Quote, I stood at the doorway with Jenny and Bernie. Pook, Clifford, took her gag off. He told her to open her mouth. He said, right, I'm going to rip your teeth out. But he didn't know how. He started hitting her teeth with the pliers, chipping them. But then he got the pliers on and started pulling it out, the stumps. But it just snapped and chipped more. Then he hit them a few more times. He put the pliers on again and really, really pulled. He pulled Suzanne's head forward until there was a snap and he had the tooth in the pliers. He did the same thing again a few times. I don't know how many. He was laughing. End quote. Wow. This left Suzanne with another source of pain. The raw nerve endings of multiple teeth exposed. Now what happens next is sad in a whole other kind of way. Later in the week, a guy named David Hill dropped by the Powell place to score some drugs. And for some reason, he was taken to the McNeely's home nearby. For some reason unknown, he was shown Suzanne being restrained in the back room. He was asked to keep an eye on her as Jean and Glenn had to leave the house. And they didn't want 
Suzanne to go missing in their absence. Not like she could just walk away, though. She was pretty bad off at this time. So this was Suzanne's chance to be rescued and saved. She begged Hill to free her. Just untie the bindings and I'll do the rest, she said. However, he did not help her. He looked her into her eyes and said he was sorry, but he couldn't help because if he did, he feared the group would do the exact same thing to him. He left her to an agonizing and certain death. Now, most people that follow the case have said this reasoning isn't right. They do not believe this at all because he was alone in the house and there was no threat to him. At the very minimum, he could have made an anonymous call to either the authorities or Suzanne's family. But this group was a very scary group. I will say that. Now, David Hill was sent to watch over Suzanne because they had to go run an errand. And this was related to their stolen car business. Now, this is where it kind of gets weird. Suzanne had this older sister named Michelle Capper, as you learned about in part one. She had a fiance, and his name was Paul Barlow. He was experiencing some kind of problems with his car, so the guys agreed to help him out. Later on, Paul would become aware of the events, and he would go on to say, quote, If I had known, I would have gone there myself, kicked the door down, got her out of there, and helped her escape. End quote. But that is not what David Hill did. Not at all. Now, this is also really sad. Once they were done with their errand, they walked back to the McNeely house. They saw Suzanne's stepfather, John, because he was out looking for Suzanne. The group, of course, denied any knowledge of her whereabouts. John was visibly shaken. He said he hadn't heard or seen Suzanne in over a week, and he was really worried for her well-being. John told him he was off to contact the police and file a report for Suzanne as a missing person. And he said he would enlist their help in finding her. So the group took this as news that they had to do some stuff and get rid of her, I guess. They knew the police would soon be involved, so they rushed back to the McNeely's house. They had to get rid of Suzanne. Everyone knew that she had been staying at the 97 Laneworthy house, so that was, of course, the first place everyone would look and then they would probably go to the McNeely house after. In the early morning hours of December 14th, 1992, Suzanne was taken from the McNeely's and forced into the truck of a stolen car. They drove 15 miles to a rural wooded lane, which was near Romilly. Suzanne could barely stand due to her injuries. But because of the high amounts of meth in her system, she had an adrenaline burst and walked the few steps to the roadside. They took her to the edge of the road and shoved her down an embankment. Suzanne, naked, without shoes, tumbled down the brush and brambles. 
and that cut her already bloody body and wounds. McNeely went down after her and doused her with gas, trying to light Suzanne on fire before setting fire to the brush and rolled up a piece of paper and then touched it to her skin. However, McNeely couldn't get the fire started. Remember, Suzanne was already one big open wound from her torture and her open wounds were wet, so she wasn't able to catch on fire. Glenn Powell took the lighter, walked up to Suzanne, and applied the open flame to her back, sparking the blaze. Suzanne erupted into flames, and the fire quickly spread to the forested area where she lay. They watched as Suzanne screamed while she was burning alive. At the top of the ditch, the four laughed and cheered, singing the hit song by the tramps, Disco Inferno. With the line, burn baby, burn, it's a disco inferno. Once Suzanne stopped moving and screaming, the group walked back to the car and drove away. They believed that Suzanne was dead. They stopped at a corner store for some drinks and snacks before returning home. By all accounts, the group was in high spirits. When they got back, Clifford Hayes and Jeffrey Lee were waiting for them. They asked if it was done. Glenn just laughed and told him, yeah, it was done, and handed Hayes back his lighter. What they didn't know is it wasn't done. After a week of unimaginable torment and suffering, after being doused in gasoline and set on fire, Suzanne continued to survive. Naked and burned, she climbed the embankment and reached the road. She walked on bare, charred feet for over half a mile before reaching Comstall Road. Barry Sutcliffe was driving to work with two people in the car with him. He spotted Suzanne at 6 a.m. Mary stopped to help the girl as he could see she was visibly wounded. When Suzanne saw Barry, she cried out in panic that they set her on fire. Barry put Suzanne in the car and drove to the first house he saw, frantically asking the homeowners to call for an ambulance. Michael and Margaret Coop were the people he ran into, and they phoned the emergency services right away, and they waited with Suzanne for them to arrive. Michael Coop would give interviews to the media later, and he said, quote, Both her hands appeared as ash. Her legs were just raw meat, and her feet were badly charred. I was struck by how polite she was. She was constantly thanking my wife for her assistance, end quote. And by all accounts, that sounds like the type of person Suzanne was. She was a really sweet and kind person. Now, his wife, Margaret Coop, would say, quote, I instinctively went to put my arms around her, but she pulled away because she could not bear to be touched. Her head was bald, and there were recent but not new cuts to her head. Her face was featureless. Her hands were red, raw, and black to the fingertips. 
Her legs were raw and bloody from top to bottom. She couldn't bear anything near her legs. She looked like the victim of an attack in the Vietnam War, but I felt she would survive. I had this theory that now she got to somewhere she could be helped. She would live. End quote. Suzanne drank six glasses of water while waiting for the ambulance to arrive. But she could barely hold the glass because, like most of her body, her fingers were just raw tissue with nerves and bones exposed to the open air. The ambulance arrived and rushed Suzanne to the hospital. During the first few hours, Suzanne was able to name her six attackers and sublot the addresses of the two houses in which she had been confined. Peter Wall of the Greater Manchester Police was the lead detective on the case. He ordered every cop to go to the old McNeely house and arrest everyone present. Luckily, all six of Suzanne's tormentors were located and arrested. Suzanne's parents were contacted. However, Suzanne's injuries were so severe that her own mother didn't recognize her. Police had to prove her identity through fingerprints, which wasn't easy because little skin remained on her hands. Police were able to find one patch of skin on her thumb that was just big enough to get a usable print. It was reported that Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely were being arrested and they were joking and smiling and laughing with the four men in the group at this time. All six of them denied all involvement in the crime and claimed they didn't know what the police were talking about. In fact, they started pointing fingers at random other people. This went on for a while until Anthony Dudson's father convinced him to confess what he knew and his part of the crime, if he had one. Whether this was to help Dudson get a better sentence or genuinely help the investigation and help the truth come out is unknown. But when Anthony started to talk, the police were stunned at the brutality of the crime. And they were stunned at how cruel human beings could be on another human being. They even took up a collection to send flowers to Suzanne in the hospital so she would have something pretty and sweet smelling in her room. Aw. It's like they wanted Suzanne to see there was still kindness and generosity in the world and that people still did care about her. Sadly, four days later, Suzanne fell into a coma from which she would never awake eventually dying in her sleep on December 18, 1992, from multiple organ failure due to her extensive burns. All six were initially sentenced to life imprisonment for the abduction and murder of Suzanne Capper. David Hill, the one who stood by and refused to help Suzanne, was never charged with a crime. A year later, an inquest was opened into Suzanne's murder. The pathologist who performed the initial autopsy testified that Suzanne suffered burns to over 80% of her body. The six murderers appealed their life sentences because they claimed they were too harsh. Jeffrey Lee pleaded guilty to false imprisonment and was sentenced to 12 years. 
Somehow, he appealed his sentence and got it reduced to just nine years. Clifford Hayes appealed his life sentence and got it reduced to 15 years. Jeffrey Lee and also Clifford Hayes were released from prison on life licenses. This is similar to parole in the United States. Lee was released in 1998 and Hayes was released in 2001. They were also given new identities and are living under assumed names in the United Kingdom. In a 2002 appeal, Anthony Dudson, citing his young age of 16 at the time of his crime, had his prison sentence reduced from 18 years to 16 years, which is the maximum sentence to which a minor his age could be sentenced. He was not happy with this reduction and made further appeals, which were denied in 2003. But he was successful in getting his sentence switched to be served in an open prison. Now, I didn't really know what this is because we don't have these things in the United States. But from my research, I found that in the UK, an open prison is one where the inmates are trusted to serve their sentences with minimal supervision and no perimeter security. They're not locked in cells. They're actually free to roam the grounds and they also can be employed outside the facility while they are serving their sentences. I'm not sure if that's the case for Dudson or not, but that's what an open prison is. So it's actually an interesting case of prisoner rehabilitation. But yeah. Bernadette McNeely, she was now known in the media as the Chucky Killer, she was released from prison in 2014. Her advocates testified that she had become a model prisoner, which meant she was leading by positive examples. They cited her duties as a gym orderly and said she would listen to other prisoners who wanted to talk about the reasons they had been sentenced to prison and that their crimes would teach McNeely that what she had done to Suzanne was awful. So she needed to be taught that. She couldn't figure that out on her own. That doesn't make any sense to me. Prison officials told the judge that McNeely had been instrumental in the capture of fellow inmates who attempted to escape. So she was a snitch, I guess, in addition to being a murderer, and she was rewarded with time deducted from her original sentence. McNeely claimed that she had been overcome with remorse during her time in jail. However, it was discovered and reported that McNeely had engaged in multiple relationships with males working in the prison. These were either guards, staff, and there are some reports that she also had a relationship with Mike Martin, who was the prison governor which is the UK version of the prison warden. So that scandal broke and Martin was asked to resign from his position before any disciplinary action could be taken. Wow. Now, this is a really weird thing. You've probably heard of Myra Henley from the Moore's Murders and Rosemary West, who, along with her husband, Fred, 
was convicted of 10 murders. One of them was her stepsister. Well, McNeely was in the same prison as these two female serial killers. And it was said that she had romantic relations with both of them. So I don't know how they're finding time to do this in prison, but they are. So, yeah. Now, her relationship with other inmates may not have been so good. Fellow inmates would describe her as manipulative, malicious, and also evil. One inmate who was interviewed said that McNeely continued to deny her involvement in Suzanne's murder and said it was someone else's fault. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and she wasn't even sorry for what she did. So, yeah. Now, McNeely currently lives under a new identity in England. This has outraged British journalists and they have reported her name. I'm not going to say it because that's not something I want to do, but her new community also does not want her there, and they have been very vocal about it. Jean Powell and Glenn Powell do remain incarcerated, and Anthony Dudson is still in the open facility. The brutal torture and murder of Suzanne Capper is a stunning example of man's inhumanity towards his fellow man. It is unimaginable to think that something like this could go on. It's stuff you hear in movies, but this was actually real life, and it just gives me the creeps in so many ways. So that was the torture and murder of Suzanne Capper. That was a very heavy episode. But thank you so much for joining me on True Crime Works. Remember to follow me on Instagram at True Crime Works and to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you have any ideas for upcoming cases, you can always email me truecrimeworks at gmail.com. I'm always looking for new ideas for cases. Talk to you next week, everyone.